I haven't met yet. My name is Chris Ginshear. I am a pastor in North Texas Presbytery here in Dallas-Fort Worth, and it's been my privilege to be with you guys. This will be my third week preaching through the Gospel of John, and I have really enjoyed our time together and looking forward to this morning and what God has to say to us through his word. So if you have your Bibles or you want to read on the screen, I'm going to be preaching from John chapter 2, the whole chapter. And every time my wife asks, what are you preaching on? I tell her the whole chapter. She's like, really? You? The whole chapter in 30 minutes? Well, we're going to do our best because this is one of those chapters that has a lot of richness in what John has to tell us about Jesus. So John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables, and he told those who sold the pigeons... Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And all God's people said, amen. So I am, I've always loved John's gospel. And if you're new to reading the Bible, uh, let me tell you why I love John's gospel. John's gospel 
what we call John's gospel, is really the account of Jesus' life from one of his disciples named John. And John tells the story a little bit differently than the other gospel accounts, like Matthew, Mark, and Luke. See, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all kind of start at the beginning and just walk through Jesus' life to the very end. It's very chronological. If you're a history buff, you love Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But if you're more of a movie guy like me, if you have a penchant for Christopher Nolan movies, you will probably see some overlapping similarities to the way John tells the story, the way Christopher Nolan makes a movie. It kind of goes back and forth in time. It's not just a straightforward telling. There's themes and notes that you kind of hit at the beginning, and then you come to the end and you figure out what was going on all along the way. This, this is kind of how John tells the story of Jesus. It's, it's very much the life and ministry of Jesus, but it's told with a unique story in mind. And we get this. We get this from the way that, that John hits on certain, certain details, certain notes, certain things that he says. John, for example, calls this the first of his signs. Now, when John calls it a sign, the other gospel writers would call it a miracle. And what's funny is there are a lot more miracles in Matthew, Mark, and Luke than there are in John. In fact, there's really only seven signs in the Gospel of John, only one of which is told in all the other Gospel accounts. So when John is going to tell us that this is the first of his signs that he did, it's his way of saying, really pay attention here. I want to take your focus and draw it in for a second, and I want you to really see what's going on here. All the Gospels record several of his miracles, but this disciple only records seven of them. In all of John's signs, there's a pattern, and you'll see this, that there's a situation that presents itself. Jesus performs a miracle to address this situation, and then the people respond in either belief or hostility. And that's what you see here in John chapter 2. This starts with this. It starts with the problem at the party. I don't know if you noticed it, but as I read it, it says that on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. In other words, the mother was invited. Jesus was also invited, but you get the sense that it's Mary who has the stronger connection to this couple getting married. Jesus and his disciples just got the invite, almost as if it's a plus one situation. But you notice what John says here. He says, on the third day. Now, if you go back and you start reading through John, it's kind of interesting. He doesn't necessarily give us a lot of clues on dates and times. But so far, what has happened in John's gospel has seemed to happen in the sequence of about six or seven days, depending on how you count. You had John testifying of who Jesus is. And then the next day, the proclamation of John the Baptist that this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then the next day, John tells some of his disciples about it, and they leave to follow Jesus. And then the next day, more disciples follow Jesus. And then you get this note that says, on the third day. Now, depending on how you count, and we don't know for sure, this is either occurring on what would have been day six or day seven of John telling this story. In other words, it's either happening on the Sabbath or the eve of the Sabbath, the day before the Sabbath. This puts into context a little bit of what's going on here, why John is telling us this is the first of his signs, which we'll see a little bit later on. But we get to verse 3, where it says, the wine ran out. This is more than just um, 
this is more than just a minor inconvenience. This wasn't necessarily a day and age where you can run to Trader Joe's and get some more two-buck chuck if you ran out of the good stuff. In other words, you had to prepare for this, which the, bride, the bridegroom had prepared as best he could. But it turns out his preparations, what he could provide, was not enough. There were either too many people at this party or there just wasn't enough to go around. And he finds himself in a situation that is filled. Maybe, you know, we would say, well, who cares? It's all about the bride and the bridegroom. Who cares about the guests, right? Uh, we're here. It's the bride's day. Bridezilla, right? That's what we think about now when we think of weddings. But in, in Jesus' day, a wedding was a cause for kind of communal celebration. It's something everybody looked forward to. It wasn't an individualistic society. It was a, a, a clan, a tribe, a culture. It was about all of us. These weddings would last seven days. They wouldn't last a couple of hours. You know, my wife is, a, my wife is Croatian, and we had, we had two weddings. So we got married. We just celebrated 21 years last week. Um, and I like to say we celebrated like a Jewish wedding because here's what happened. We got married September 14th in Augusta, Georgia, and we had a great prim and proper service at our church. It was, it was awesome. It was great. We had a lot of friends and family there. Uh, one of our guests also was a caterer. She helped us with the meal. We were able to feed like 300 people at this wedding. I mean, it was a huge deal, and it was all people we knew, right? Now, we were a part of this church for a while, so it was a lot of friends and family friends and all this other thing. Um, but I still remember there were so many rules that we had to abide by for this wedding. You couldn't do this, you couldn't do that. We couldn't have music at the reception. You couldn't dance, you couldn't do this. It was just a nice, it was a nice event, right? Then a week later, we go to my wife's hometown in Croatia. And it's a much smaller atmosphere, not as many people. We literally get married in my mom's, uh, my mother-in-law's basement that she was renting out to the only Protestant church in this little city. Ended up being a charismatic church. They were doing some funky stuff in the back while we were getting married, and I had no idea what was going on. My wife later told me, yeah, they were speaking in tongues, and I just thought it was Croatian. I didn't know any better. <laughs> but we're sitting there, we're getting married, and it's a much smaller, much more informal gathering. But then we went to the reception afterwards, and her dad basically rented out the small little, I don't know what you would call it. It was like a little tavern up in the mountains of Croatia, we were the only people there. It was small. It was rustic. But we ended up having a party for like eight hours. I was exhausted, but it was so much fun. We had my wife's family. My family flew over. We had some of her best friends from school. We had, I don't know how many courses of a meal, but it was all small stuff. But the party just wouldn't end. It just kept going. And I'm kind of like, are we ever going to go to sleep? Right? It was just vastly different experiences. Imagine that second experience times seven. That was the expectation for a Jewish wedding. It was an unending party for a full week. It was a big deal. So to have wine run out part of the way through, it wouldn't just be a minor inconvenience. It was a major social, cultural issue. The, the bridegroom and the bride would be entering into their new relationship together in their community under a cloud of shame and guilt that they weren't they weren't wealthy enough to provide for the community during this great feast of celebration. So Mary is undoubtedly concerned. She loves this couple, and she says, Jesus, they ran out of wine. Now, I don't know about you, but notice how John refers to Mary here building up to Jesus' response. 
he draws our attention to two times the mother of Jesus, the mother of Jesus. So when you hear Jesus' response to his own mother, maybe you're taken aback. I don't know about you, but I think I would think twice before I referred to my mom as woman. It, it, it just it doesn't ring right, does it? It just sounds so harsh, so cruel, or at least curt. You know, commentators go back and forth, and they say this is either you know, not necessarily a bad thing or a harsh thing. It's just like the equivalent of saying, yes, ma'am, right, in, in our day and age. And others say, no, it is just like it sounds. Either way, John's pointing to a difference in the way Mary is being referred to and how Jesus is referring to his own mother here. This is a time where the mother of Jesus says to him and expects him to do something, but Jesus is seeing things from a different plane and a different perspective. He's not being disrespectful to his mother, but he is creating some separation. He's saying, Mary, if I'm going to do anything, it's not because I'm your son, but it's because I'm the son of my heavenly father. Don't expect me to do things just because it's culturally, traditionally, or even familially relevant to you. I'm going to do something because I'm about my father's business. He says, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. We're going to come back to this verse a little later, but for now, I believe Jesus is responding the way he is because he sees things differently than his mother in this case or his disciples at this point. But notice Mary. She still has tremendous faith in Jesus. Maybe she understood her place. Maybe she understood Jesus' timeline perspective. What he was going to do was different than hers. But she still looks to the servants and just says, just do whatever he tells you. I don't know that Mary was expecting Jesus to do what he was about to do. But either way, she had said, it's not about me to tell you what to do. It's not about me telling Jesus what to do. We're supposed to do whatever he tells us. Mary got that. So, verse 5, we go on and we read... Or verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding about 25 gallons. Okay? So these were the the pots that were used to basically pour over the hands of the people serving, uh, serving the dishes, serving the wine, serving the goods, people receiving it to wash their hands so there would be no ritual uncleanness at this party. In other words, the party could just keep going. You didn't have to wash and go see the priest and do this and get cleans. It, it was like everything's taken care of. Just enjoy yourself. It's, well, I mean, they were drinking. If they would have had keys for their donkeys, it'd be like, put your keys over here. We're just going to party for right now. Okay? Jesus then turns to them and commands them to fill these empty jugs with water and then serve it to the master of the feast. And I find it funny that right now, only the people who know about this are the servants and Jesus' disciples. They take the water, what they think is water, to the master of the feast. And this was the guy responsible for all the festivities and the logistics, the equivalent of the wedding planner, right? And what you would do is it wasn't like everybody had their own cup, and you go up to the little fountain, and you push a little spigot, and you get your lemonade and tea and this, that, and the other thing. It was like this jar had to be brought to you and poured out into like a communal cup like this. And you would come and you would drink the wine from one cup. And so they, they brought it to the master of the feast who's probably holding the cup for everybody. And they start to pour it out. Now at this point, they just know they filled it with water. 
but what comes out is wine. So, I don't know, I'd probably be shaking as I'm holding this thing, right? It's big and it's heavy, and all of a sudden I'm thinking, is water going to come out and I'm going to look like a fool? But wine comes out, and they must be thinking, what just happened? This is incredible. But what's even more incredible is this. The master of the feast says to the bridegroom, most other people do it this way. They serve the fancy, expensive stuff first, and when people have lost their sensitivity, then you go for the two-buck chuck, and you make that stuff last because it's cheaper. But when this guy tastes this wine, he looks at the bridegroom and says, most people do that, but you say the best until now. It's his way of saying this party is only getting better, not we're waiting for it to end and we're just kind of coasting towards it. I love this, that he says, you have kept the good wine until now. Now, this is something, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to veer off into something that is hotly kind of debated. But there's this phenomenon. You notice he gives a detail that there were six of these stone jars, right? John isn't one for giving a lot of details, unless there's some kind of significance or meaning to them. When you look at things like Hebrew numerology, it's where you look at things from a Hebrew perspective and certain numbers have certain meanings or significance, right? Um, Some numbers are highly significant, like the number three, for example, in in Hebrew, really meant perfection. It's it's the concept of this is it, this is what it's supposed to be, this is perfection. The number seven also meant perfection, but more in the sense of wholeness or completeness, which is Why there's some significance to when God created the world, he rested on the seventh day because his work had been complete. It's the capping off of all of God's creational activity. It gets even more interesting when you think about uh, the mark of the beast in Revelation 13. And now I'm not going to go all crazy Revelation conspiracy theories on this, but Revelation 13 actually does say the mark of the beast is 666. And I just find it funny that the mark of the beast is 666 is exactly three, one less than the sign of perfection. In other words, the beast is the one that's perfectly incomplete, the one that's perfectly imperfect, the one that is fully and completely at odds with the one who is perfect, 777. Now, why would John here make a note that there were six of these stone jars used for the rite of purification? Did it just happen to be six? Maybe. Or maybe it has something to do with what comes next. The trouble at the temple. So we leave this scene, the wedding at Cana, and now we're told that the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus and his disciples went to Jerusalem. Now, this isn't happening the next day. This is happening sometime after. But again, this is John's way of collapsing two events in close proximity, saying... This was the sign. Now let's talk about the significance. Let's talk about another situation that's going to give some meaning to this sign. So as the Passover of the Jews was at hand, this is one of three times that John recounts that Jesus and the disciples would go to Jerusalem. In fact, this is what's funny. Commentators sometimes are at odds with, well, did Jesus cleanse the temple once or twice? Because when you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus does it like at the end of his ministry, when he's just about to die, the triumphal entry, he's coming in and he kind of cleanses the temple before his, his death and burial. But John has it here at the front end of his ministry, the very beginning. I think what's happening here is this actually happened twice. 
And John is here saying, this is year one of Jesus' ministry. Year two is when he goes back to Jerusalem a second time. And year three is towards the end, closer to his cross. John is here saying, this is the start, the kickoff of Jesus' ministry. And so he comes into Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, he found all these who were selling oxen, sheep, pigeons, money changers sitting there. Now, let me just correct something. There was not a problem in principle with what was going on here. The Old Testament allowed for people who were traveling from far off to come to the temple without having had to bring their perfect sacrifice through a long and dangerous journey. I mean, just think about it practically. If you were a shepherd, if you were a farmer, if you were just an average Israelite, once a year you have to go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And you'd have to bring your perfect sacrifice to that in order to make purification for your sins, your family's sins, and, and prepare you for the rest of the year. How likely would it be that that animal would remain perfect through a long and perilous journey, through the wilderness, through deserts, through craggy mountains and hills? I mean, you, are, you would risk a lot to do that. So even the Old Testament makes provision for this. It says if you can't bring it because you're coming from so far away, then you can't exchange. You can bring the equivalent financially of your offering, come into Jerusalem and purchase your, your ox, your sheep, your pigeon, whatever you could afford for your offering. So this is what is, is acceptable. This is what's known. This was the practice. This is even allowed in Scripture. So why does Jesus do what he does? Why does he make a cord and literally whips out all these people? It's because of this. It's not what they were doing. It's where they were doing it. They were literally doing it in the temple, it says. Now, they weren't so bold as to say, okay, we're going to go to like the holiest of holies and do this. We're not even going to do this in the, the high priestly court. We're not going to even do this in, in kind of the next outer rung, the inner court. We're going to do this in the outer court, which was known as the court of the Gentiles. In other words, if you're, if you're like me, American-born, you couldn't go past that court unless you were a true-blood Israelite. There, there was a place where you could get close to God, but only those who were true Israelites could go deeper, go further. You were allowed in the temple space, but only in this part, not further. So the religious leaders of Jesus' day said... That'd be a great place to set up where we can do our money exchange, where we can set up our sheep and oxen and everything else and make it more convenient for our people to transact their business closer to the temple and let the Gentiles fend for themselves. This is what made Jesus so angry. Not what they were doing, but where they were doing it and what it meant as a roadblock and impediment to people coming closer to God. He draws up this whip. He whips them out. Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. The temple was never meant to be a house of trade where you come and bring something and barter with God. It was meant to be the place where all of his people come and present their perfect sacrifice so they could be accepted in his presence. The trade was supposed to be going out elsewhere, out in the city. Not right there where the Gentiles could no longer come in, where people far from God couldn't enter in closer. 
This practice, this tradition kept out those who wanted to approach and get closer to God. So that's why Jesus whipped them out of there. This obviously confounds them, right? Because what do you see is their response. Verse 16, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? This is the only next time that a sign is referenced. Jesus had just performed his first sign at Cana days, weeks, months, maybe earlier. And now he does something in the temple and the the Jews, as John's way of referring to the Jewish religious leaders of the day, saying, what sign do you do to prove to us that you can do what you're doing? You see, they had this expectation. And we talked about this some the time before in the rest of John chapter 1 where they were expecting a Messiah. And we talked about their expectations. It was everything from like a William Wallace Braveheart warrior poet to someone who would sacrifice himself on behalf of God's people. But the net effect, what they thought would happen when the Messiah came, where they would, the Messiah would kick out the Romans. The Messiah would conquer their national, political, cultural enemies. The Messiah is going to come and, and make Israel great again. And we're not going to have to mess with all these guys over here anymore. This is the one the religious religious leaders thought was going to come. That was their Messiah. They were looking for someone to throw out the Romans and restore God's people in the land, not remove their roadblocks of fake and false religion that prevented people from coming to the Father. Jesus here again is about his Father's business, his Father's house. Not the expectations of the religious leaders of his day. Starting to see the parallels between these two accounts. What Jesus does in Cana at a wedding and what Jesus does at a temple. He twists their expectations. He redefines who he is and what he's about. That he's not just going to listen to his mother and his family. He's not just going to listen to the religious leaders. He's doing something completely different. And this is the third thing we see in this passage. Not just the problem at the party or the trouble at the temple, but we see the joyful disruption of Jesus. When they ask, what sign do you show us for these things? They're asking, whose authority are you doing this? And he doesn't give them a direct answer. Instead, he gives them kind of a a cryptic answer, something that seems to make no sense, something that seems very similar to what he told his mother in Cana when he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. He answers their question with this way. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. You know, I, sorry, I am a, I'm a pop culture geek and a Christopher Nolan fan. But this made me think, if, if John's gospel is like uh, Christopher Nolan telling the story of Oppenheimer, um, right? It, it's a little bit weird and esoteric and abstract, and it kind of flows fluidly from past, present, and future. This is his other work. This is the prestige about two magicians caught in a conflict. And the prestige was what uh, a magician would set up as the, the pledge. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. And then it would be the, the, the trick or the turn. You would actually do the thing you said you were going to do. And then the prestige would be the outcome, the, the third act. This is Jesus literally telling them the pledge and the prestige. He's telling them, destroy this temple and I will raise it up again. What he's going to do is he's going to leave the middle a bit of a question mark for right now. The act, the trick, if you will. 
He's saying something here. He's saying, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. John supplies the answer to the question. He gives you the cheat sheet for the quiz. He tells you this. He says, after the Jews said it's taken us 46 years to build it, will you raise it up in three days? And John says, verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. Jesus is redefining where God meets with his people. Jesus is here defining the way you actually come to God. It's not through a, a, a purity ritual. It's not through presenting a sacrifice that's perfect and without blemish on your behalf. It's not through any of that. Jesus is saying, I am the way people come to the Father. Not this building, not this religious system, not this cultural practice. The fundamental core of life with God is not a program, it's a person, Jesus is saying. And I am that person. He is saying, I have come to bring to reality all that the ceremonial, cultural, and traditional customs of the Israelites could only point to. I'm not the sign. I'm the fulfillment. I'm the reality to which all the other signs point to. What he's saying here in this, he is saying, yes, I'm the Messiah, but not the one that you expect. I will be the one that rescues my people from guilt and shame. I will overthrow all the obstacles that block them from coming to the Father. This is what he's saying when he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. It's not a magic trick. It's his life's work in ministry. It's the prestige that only later will the disciples and everyone else figure out that's how he did it. That's what he meant. But something has to happen first. Before he can get to that, something else has to happen. And this is where I want to go back. I want to go back to Cana. And I want to go back to when Mary brings it to Jesus' attention that the wine has run out. And Jesus gives the answer, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, when Jesus refers to my hour, he is always referencing his cross. He is always pointing to his death. He's pointing to the, the time when all of, all of Israel's, all of the people of God's, all of his disciples, all of all the people who cared about Jesus, their hopes would be dashed, their fears would be expanded, confusion would set in. They would have no idea what has happened and what is going on. This is what Jesus is referring to. When he says, my hour, he's referencing his cross, his death, and his burial as the hour. We look at, you know, it was funny. I was talking with somebody who said, last week I, I was reviewing your sermon. It was because I had an awful lot of Old Testament passages that I read. I'm not going to do that. Instead, I'm going to read a really crazy one from the book of Revelation. Because what you see in Revelation, which was also written by this disciple, John the disciple, is you have a lot of, let's just call it what it is, crazy imagery that has kept people busy writing books and crafting theories and hypotheses about when is the end of the world? When is Jesus coming back? Is this the Antichrist? This, that, and the other thing. Can I spoil something for you? The bulk of Revelation is really John's way 
of saying one thing three times. And you notice that, that there's three sets of seven things that happen in the book of Revelation. You have, um, you have the seven seals, and then you have the seven trumpets, and then you have the seven bowls. And something that's interesting about each one of those is the first two, John kind of quickly goes through one through six. And then there's like an expanded um, director's cut, if you will, where John says, let me give you a little bit more backstory here. Let me tell you what ends up happening between the sixth and the seventh. And then you get to the seventh, or the third set of sevens, the, the, the bowls, the seven bowls. And this is what John says. Verse 16, or chapter 16 in the book of Revelations. This comes after the first two sets of seven. Verse chapter 15 is the seven angels and the seven plagues. And these are the seven angels with the seven plagues that are given the seven bowls of God's wrath. Chapter 16 says, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went, poured out his bowl on earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and everything died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl and the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they, sh- they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It's what they deserve. And I heard the halter saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Are you glad you came to church this morning? That's just one through three. And it's a pretty dark picture, isn't it? I can tell you this. Four, five, and six don't go much better. In fact, it gets a lot worse. It says, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits, performing signs, who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. And they assemble them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, it is done. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine, of the fury, of his wrath. When Jesus says, my my hour has not yet come, he was probably thinking about this. I don't think he was thinking about the fact that he was a 30-year-old single man. And he was wanting to get married himself, and he was kind of lost in thought when his mother interrupted him. I don't think he was thinking just about the social situation of the bridegroom and the bride and the shame they would feel if they ran out of wine. I don't don't think he was just thinking about those things. 
He knew that his hour had not yet come because his hour would be the time where all of God's wrath would be poured out on him. What John shares in Revelation is not always some future sequence of events. It's telling the cosmic story of what Jesus has done for his people. That he has stepped in between God's wrath and his creation and has said, I will drink it. In Matthew 26, we read that Jesus prays before he's taken into custody, and he says, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus, if he was lost in thought at the wedding in Cana, it was the thought of what all of his ministry was going to be. Not just to do good in the moment, not just to save a cultural situation but to save mankind from wrath that we justly deserve because we have sinned and fallen and run away from God. We have worshipped and served created things and not the creator. And Jesus says, my cup is the cup of God's wrath, that I drink it so you don't have to. This is John's way of saying Jesus is the bridegroom who one day will be taken away but only so he will return for his bride who has purified herself by his blood, who has trusted in him and believed in him that they may have life. This is the joyful disruption of Jesus, where we deserve wrath, where we have guilt and shame. Jesus comes to bring joy, to bring fulfillment, not haphazardly, not casually, not shallowly, but fully that we would have life with God. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus, who takes all of your wrath for all of our sin and exchanges it, transforms it into new wine of joy and gladness. Take away every impediment. Take away every roadblock. Take away every excuse that we could muster and let us see you for who you are. The one true and only way to be with the Father. We pray and ask this in your name. Amen.